Welcome back, my friends, to the sweet spot where IT leaders share the insight with other leaders and others that want to lead. My name is Carlos Vargas. Wait, wait, wait. This is not a regular week. Howard, <laughs> do we have two Howards? Did we change? That's true. That's true. The beards are multiplying. <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, guys? Doing well. Hey there. Doing really good, Carlos. How are you? I'm good. After a little bit of space, Star Wars rides oh cool. yeah that's right you finally got to join the uh the the official disney crew yep right. i think it's a requirement for the podcast i think to become a, right. a regular guest you have to at least go once a year is yeah. your hat based on your negative cash flow based on that vacation or what's the <laughs> <laughs> actually it's actually not it's like uh, let's see uh cardon capital is making me some cash flow <laughs> let's see yeah. I see. you're so slipping in some uh, so some advertising yeah, it's so expensive. You now got you've now got to have some uh, some advertising. Are you going to start saying like uh, what is it, Taco Bell every every or Carl Junior? You know, that, that, that would be cool. I'm going to program it. Cling. <laughs> Taco Bell. Yo quiero Taco Bell. <laughs> I believe we have a we have a special guest this week, Mr. Don Jones. Uh, I think I've known Don for about a decade. Yeah, that sounds plausible. Sounds sounds reasonable, right? I mean, if we're just yeah. making stuff up. Yeah. Um, where did you intercept? Where what's what's the origin story here? So my all-time favorite non-security conference is Tech Mentor. Um, Tech Mentor is uh, actually kind of what it sounds like. It's a bunch of it's Microsoft focused, but it's a bunch of really smart people that get up on stage and teach you how to do something really, really directly. Hmm. There's no sales. I, I'm fairly certain. That if you tried to sell something, like if you tried to sell, like if you work for HP and you try to sell HP, I'm pretty sure a sniper, like a, a red dot will appear on you and, you, and a, there will be a shot that rings out and you fall. Yeah, 100%. Um, That's conference policy, actually. Yeah. They're hardcore <laughs> against any kind of like content that sounds sponsored, which made it really, really good for just absorbing information. Hmm. Um, and everyone they put up on stage was incredible. Um, and they let Don come up on stage. And Don wrote a book called Learn PowerShell in a Month of Lunches. Did I get that right? Yep, that's correct. Which which I think I bought four versions of. Um, yeah, there was and, a bunch. Yeah. Uh, it's a fantastic book for anyone that, that's looking to learn PowerShell. Um, but Don also came up on stage in a three-piece suit, and no, nobody else did. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. The suit right? right? Or what, what was the... It was actually, I, I doubt it was a three-piece suit. It was probably a vest and a tie because I, uh, I wave my arms a lot. Oh, that's true. Suits, that's true. Yeah. Suits there was no jacket. It was the vest. Yeah. So, no, I, I, um, Mark Manassi was the three-piece suit guy. And yeah. a, a, an embarrassingly large amount of my career decisions were based entirely on what Mark Manassi did. Uh, <laughs> and so I wanted to dress up a little bit. And because he has really good reasons for wearing a, a three-piece suit. And, and I, I'm like, I want to do that, but I can't wear a suit. I don't want to look just like Mark Hanger on. So I wanted to come up with kind of a, you know, my own style. So I actually, I had a stylist who, who came up with that and helped me pick out the vests and the ties that went with them and, and laid out my outfits, girl animal style before I, you know, when I packed. Uh, yeah. Well, was that, was that a company sponsored? Is that out of pocket? Uh, that was out of pocket. Yeah. Wow. And Paul just outed. Paul's like, I'm out. 
it's not that bad really it's not terribly bad um i could probably do it now that someone explained the process to me and all that but keep in mind that for most of that period i was independent so i was the company so i mean you could say the company paid for it but it was still out of pocket yeah i i kind of do that now myself i have a, a uniform to wear on yeah. stage I have, a, yeah. I have a separate uniform I wear on stage from what I use when I'm at conferences, which is also a uniform. It is a tremendous part of overall personal branding. Like people, people, you know, branding is all about when I show you something, you know what to expect and you associate that with things that you like and appreciate and everything else. And your appearance on stage, like I, I hated wearing the conference branded shirt because that wasn't my brand it was there. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not there to help them. Um, you know, if, if I, if I wanted to get takeaways off of that, like, uh, come to your location and teach a private class for you, which is where I made a lot of money or whatever it was, all of that had to factor into it. So, I mean, you really have to think it's, it's how do you present yourself? It's how do you sound? It's what kind of jokes do you make? It's how do you write? It's what do the covers look like? It's what does your covering look like? What your clothes look like? It's kind of everything. So that was a huge part of it. I mean, from gosh, I want to say from 2001 to 2014, I was pretty much independent most of that time. Most of my presentations have a bio slide is the first slide. Um, and it has this massive full page picture of myself with a gray jacket and a blue shirt. I tried the darndest to ensure I wear that exact outfit every time I'm on stage, there just so go. that they could see the picture and see yeah. me as a duplicate of environment. There you go. And, um, and if there's more than one screen, it's better because then they get to see the live and digital version all the same time. And see, I try to use as few slides as possible. Zero is my zero slides is my target. Really? I yeah. you and Howard are the same. I <laughs> take the alternative <laughs> approach. We we tell stories. I'm sure you also tell stories, but I find having visuals behind me helps with the story. And as I'm transitioning story, I transition visuals. Most of it's visuals and not words, but it's I I like to ensure that. You know, just like turning a page, that's what the audience is feeling like. Yeah, if, if I'm doing a, a board level presentation, for example, I will have some supporting visual materials, mainly things that, that either emphasize or support what I'm saying. When I was doing Tech Mentor, there was enough visuals in terms of the products I was demonstrating, usually Windows mm -hmm. PowerShell, that when I wanted to talk and I didn't want you looking at the screen, I wanted right. you looking at me because I needed to wave my hands and make some giant statement like, you know, learn PowerShell or learn to say, would you like fries with that, right? Like there's a whole teaching methodology that kind of, you know, builds around big statements like that. And I didn't want to distract from that. So, yeah. Right. Was, was that learned or did you evolve over time? Like your first stagecraft, same as your existing stagecraft? Oh God, no, no. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My first conference presentation was probably, I want to say like 1997, 98. And... I was super nervous. I had a ton of slides because I wanted to, like, that's how I was going to keep myself on track and remember what to say. My demos were all extremely scripted. It, so, you know, you talk about storytelling and the thing that tech people get wrong about teaching anything or in, and not even teaching, but conveying any kind of message is a lot of us have a very engineer type of brain, mm -hmm. right? Like we're accustomed to see the problem, solve the problem. And so we start out with this idea that, okay, before I can start, I have to, I have to indoctrinate you. I have to teach you all the terms and concepts and everything else. 
And that is a crappy way. And you're thinking, well, it would have been easier if I knew all those things up front when I was learning because I had to learn these things as I go and that was harder. And that's because that's how your brain works and you had no choice. It was always going to be that way. But as an engineer, you're trying to fix, you're not trying to make my learning easier. You're trying to change how human brains work and you can't. So don't. And here's how storytelling works. So I definitely out of the gate, I'm like, okay, here's the 12 acronyms you need to learn. Remember all these. And that's just not how people learn. So I, I have definitely learned a lot and evolved a lot over time. I've studied a lot of cognitive science, a lot of instructional design. Um, all of that has, has really been an input. I mean, there, there is a science to, to communicating with other human beings. So there's also the, the art of confidence. Yeah. Right. Um, I think if you, if you mastery of something requires, we're just going to pretend it's 10,000 hours, but it, but, it, but to use that, that, that kind of saying, right. Um, it's 10,000 hours of proper practice, not 10,000 hours of practice. That being said, um, if you don't want to be a professional at it, but you want to be decent at it, um, it zero of it, of it comes without practice. Yeah. Right. Um, if you didn't do any of the reading and simply got up on stage 50 times, the difference at the 50th would be grossly different than the first, just because you'd get over the fear of, oh, my God, this is going to be the worst thing ever. And pretty soon it's just another day that ends in Y. Yep. Right. Yeah, for absolutely certain. Uh, you know, again, the first time I was on stage in front of, I don't know, 100 people, I was just sweat pouring down me and everything else. I, I've been at, at tech ed or ignite or whatever they called it with 6,000 people crammed into the room and it was, it was fine. It was Tuesday. It was whatever. Yeah. And it's amazing the difference that makes in how your message is received. Yes. Uh, if I could, I, I wish I could get people to understand that your message might be amazing, but if you're not confident, no one else has confidence in you. Yeah. Confidence is the one thing that gets mirrored right back. It's tone of voice. If you, if your voice is breaking or wavering it, and, your audience can't help it, right? It's built into our brains. It's part of the body language, part of our brains. And you can even tell everyone up front, you know, look, I'm a little nervous and it doesn't matter. They can try to make, uh, you know, accounts for that, but you can't like your brain is automatically discarding this information because it's hitting the wrong triggers. Well, well, and that's, that's the thing, right? I can say, you can get up on stage and say, I'm nervous. I'm nervous. I don't really do this very often. And that might change how, the audience interprets you as an individual, but it will not change how they interpret the information that you give them. Nope, they will not right. be any more confident. They will not retain it any better than had you not given that disclaimer. They will train it, retain it infinitely better if you've developed the storytelling voice. Yep. Right. Yeah. And that, that goes if you're reading uh, someone's text, hearing someone's message, like all of that is just, you know, baseline communication. I had to learn a lot about writing. I mean, I, so, you know, all these books behind me on this bookshelf, I wrote all those. And the first one I wrote in 2000-ish uh, is very different from the last technology book I wrote, you know, in, in 2018 or 2019 or whenever it was. Style-wise, content-wise, what, how, yeah. how, what's the technology writing evolution look like? So, I mean, I, I think when I started, I was really trying to write a manual, hmm. right? And that's different from teaching someone something. I, I I, I, I thought I had a storyline, but it turns out I didn't. Like what I had was not really a storyline. I recognize that now. And so when I got to the, I mentioned this before we started, when I got to the month of lunches series, so I, I started that series because people kept asking me to recommend a PowerShell book. And I had given up writing PowerShell books. I, I'd written the first two and I thought that was enough. And 
I started, I'm like, well, why wouldn't you just buy one of the ones I already wrote? Well, see, it turns out the ones I, I wrote first, when PowerShell first came out, I wrote them for a VB scripter because that's who the initial audience was. So I was writing for another programmer. By, by the second chapter, we were programming. Well, but that's not what the later audience was. Mm -hmm. They didn't have that experience. And so the book was completely mm -hmm. unapproachable. I'm like, oh, well, I'm sure someone's written something better. And so I started looking at all the ones on Amazon and they just copied my table of contents. And so by <laughs> chapter two or three, you were doing programming. I'm like, okay, look, if I'm going to write another book, we're going to engineer this thing. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to make sure like, here's point A, I'm going to take you to point B. That's where you're going to wind up. And you know what? This is the exact journey we're going to take. And oh, I can't do D and E in that order. I need to flip those because I don't want to teach you something. I don't want to ever be teaching you and say, oh, we'll get to that later. I don't want to do that. I don't want to mention it till we're going to get to it. So right. the sequencing of the book, everything like that was just incredibly, incredibly engineered to the point where, so the book makes a promise, learn Windows PowerShell in a month of lunches. So I've got roughly 30 days. I don't want you to work on weekends. So I'm going to say like 20-ish days. I, lunch is an hour. So I've got an hour to work with you. How much can you read in an hour? Right. Right. So it turns out it's about 12,000 words for most adults you know, reading in their native language. So I, I've got about 12,000 words per chapter. I want to give you a little exercise to do at the end because immediate use is how you reinforce. So like all of that had to get really, really engineered. That is completely different from my first book where I just sat down and started typing words into to Microsoft Word. So your first iterations were more like manuals and your yeah. future iterations were more like education. They were teaching, yeah. Yeah, interesting. And has that... How has that evolved into the fantasy side of authorship? Like, is it significantly different? Are you using the same general approach? Are you trying to train, you know, in a loose definition of train? In that yeah, so it, it's funny you say that because apparently I'm, I'm dumb and can't learn from the past. <laughs> so back to the manual. This is a fantasy so manual. If you if you go to my if you go to my website, donjones.com, you can sign up for my author's newsletter and you get you get the first trilogy I wrote, the first two book series I wrote, and then some short stories. And you might read those and go, the story's fine. But what I did is I just sat down and started writing. Hmm. And it's fine, but like I didn't have a point B. I, I, I knew what point A was. I had no point B. So I just, I'm just, let's see where these characters go. And it turns out that's George R. R. Martin's problem. And it's why he's never finished Stupid Game of Thrones. Because he's like, I don't know where the characters are going. Like, you should have <laughs> known that before you picked up the typewriter. So now I write my fantasy books a lot like I wrote my tech books. I outline aggressively. I'll spend a month outlining mm -hmm. and I want to make sure I've got all my plot arcs accounted for and I know what every character is doing. And like if I bring something up, I have to make sure I tie that up later. Like I can't just, here's a character. Okay, like where'd he go? Oh, I was done with him. I didn't need him. No, you have to write him out of the story. He can't just not show up again. He's got to, there's got to be a reason for it. Right. So I outline aggressively. And, and then, I don't know, the other day, so we just had summer break last week. So I, I wrote a chapter every single day. Um, I had a couple chapters that were 10,000 words. And that didn't take all day. That took four hours to write because my outline was just so perfect. And I just had to write the dialogue and I could get into the characters' heads and I could, I could, make, I could execute the outline. I could see what the outline wanted to do and, and just make that happen. So, so yeah, it, it, it turns out that my fiction writing is structurally a lot like my tech writing. I just had to, I had to rediscover that fact. Is, do you have like a word count minimum? Like Stephen King is a, what is it? 10 pages per day. 
And if he doesn't get his 10 page, he he was working till he hits the page count. And then he goes no, golfing. No, because if, if my brain's not working, I just have to acknowledge that and stop. Yeah. Usually I'm writing crap at that point. I'm going to just have to rewrite it anyway. Right. Um, I typically, it depends on the book. The book I'm writing right now, I, I want it to be a 100,000 word book. So, you know, I, I've got this many chapters, blah, blah, blah. So each chapter needs to be about 5,000 words. Some can be more if some are less. Some can be less if some are more. Um, if I don't hit it, I usually put it aside and I come back to it the next day or I'll ask someone else to read it mm. because often they'll be like, like you went really quickly through here. Like people are making assumptions in their heads that I'm not getting on the page. And I'm like, Oh, great. Perfect. That's a thousand more words. We're good to go. Um, have you ever seen the interview between King and Martin? Martin is yeah. the interviewer and yeah. And, and Martin, he still says the, it's like the best moment I've ever seen in an interview of, of authors. Martin looks at King and goes, what do you do about the crippling writer's block? And King goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like for, for an author that's as prolific as him to say, I've never had writer's block. Are going to be. Do you just want to punch him? <laughs> no. Like no, I, I'm, not, I'm not an author and I don't, and I don't kind of want to punch him. I've never had writer's block. Interesting. I have definitely had times where I wasn't in the mood to be in those characters' heads at that moment. That was not writer's block. I knew exactly what they needed to do and what they needed to say and everything else. I just wasn't in the mood for it. Mm. Um, so I, I've just finished a fantasy trilogy, and I really need to get into the trilogy that it winds up being the prequel to that, although you don't know that at the outset. And <laughs> I, have it, I have it outlined. I know what everybody has to do. And I sat down to do it, and I was like, oh, Scott, I can't. It's just too much magic and fairy tales right now. So I have another series that's a science fiction series. Let me try and do this. It just boom, just started gushing out. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that, right? You spent so much time in a time and place with specific characters that yeah. to live their world at a different time and place would be weird. Yeah, and they you just need, need to go. Right? They need to go home and come back next year, maybe. Right. Yeah. I'm I'm not a reader of that genre, but I know how it is. What What are you looking for, Howard, in that kind of story? Like, what's What's the most compelling part of sort of fantasy series to you? Is it the characters? Is it the arc? Is it like, what's the, what's the pull? Well, it, it changes, yeah. right? Like um, first I want, I want the world to be big enough that I can live in it for a while. Hmm. So if there's one book in the world, meh. yeah, right. right. Like I, cause I know if it's, if it's bad, it's not going to be worth the time to read it. And if it's good, I'm going to be disappointed that it's over and I can't visit the world anymore. Amen. Um, so it's, it's really, <laughs> does it have a good, and then it's kind of standard book stuff, right? Does it have a good enough opening, right? Um, the thing I remember most is the smell of Aunt Paul's kitchen. Like that, that's a beautiful opening because we can all, we all remember our aunt or grandmother's, the smell of their kitchen, right? Being a kid and, and kind of being around that. Um, and it puts us in a place in time. And now I want to read, I want to know how does a fantasy book start in Aunt Paul's kitchen and go from there? Um, there are, 10 plus books in that series um so then the second is do they have does it have anything interesting to add interesting to add could be really good dialogue and interesting characters in a world that i've visited a thousand times it could be it's fantasy so it could be a unique system of magic or in the case Ooh. of martin almost no to no magic right very similar to tolkien in that way right yeah um it could be uh ellie modest jr um who writes where Magic is extremely prevalent um, and yet still figures out a way to manage 
um, supply and demand economy when you can create anything from magic. Um, so does it have something interesting to say? Is the world interesting? Um, and then it's just standard book stuff, right? Um, but, it, but it really is like, how long am I going to be able to live in this world? Um, the worst, I'm reading something now. Um, it's in a universe created by Stan Lee, um, but they did a huge promotion at Comic-Con a couple of years ago. Big interactive exhibit that you walk through called Something About Light. I don't really care. Really, really good first half. I cannot, I, like reading one page now is like thumb screws. It's, it's, it's an awful, torturous experience. And I don't know what to do about it. I'm now so far in, I kind of want to know how it, how it resolves. At the same time, it's taken a turn to a place that is so incredibly boring and well broad that I just can't be bothered to continue to read it. Yeah. Um, which really, it's horrible, right? Cause it's, that's like the worst you could do. I'd rather it was boring all the way through. <laughs> right. At least you your expectations would be set. Correct. Correct. <laughs> Don't change expectations part the way through. Right. Well, so my, my fantasy series will ultimately be 10 bucks. So hopefully that'll be enough for that's you. That's good. Yeah. And I'm about halfway through. Do you have do you have a visual goal here? Like you want to see this on stage? You want to see this on film? You want to see this in Netflix? I mean, I'm not going to say no to an HBO deal. <laughs> but, it, you know, some authors don't have that vision. They, they like the written word. They think it's a better representation of the story versus it's, you know, it's 90 minute version. I, I write very visually. So I, I think this stuff would translate pretty well. Um, there's a a certain amount of internal monologue, but even when I'm writing first person, I don't use that as much as I probably could or should. So right. it, it would translate well. I've never had that in mind, though. Interesting. Just keep in mind that for a tech company, Amazon can't produce anything with visual effects. <laughs> and Netflix can't commit to anything more than two seasons. Yeah. So a 10-book yeah, exactly. series, don't sell it to Netflix, and please don't sell it to Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> so, so look at all this. You went from technologist to book author, initially on the technology field. Yep. Then you went into a little bit more creative writing. Any other jump? And I'm just looking at, at the, pro the progression that as a technologist, you went through something completely different. You still have a I day do. job. That's the interesting yeah, part. That's where I, go. I do, yeah. <laughs> I, I got a day job. I'm not authoring books. I think the jump to leadership was, was huge. And, and it is a jump. And then make, make no mistake, it's a jump. And it's not an evolution of your technologist skills. It is, mm. it is a different job with different skills and different things that you, you like and dislike. And honestly, the first, the first two times I did it, I didn't care for it. Um, I was probably too young. I, I did not have a good mentoring level support for someone to kind of teach me through it and, and make me feel better about things that were going wrong that I was accountable for that I had no control over. Like that's really hard. Um, but now I love it. Now I, I, I would really not have it any other way. I, I really enjoy what I do right now. So, so one of the problems I have is um, leadership has made me very hard to manage. <laughs> really? I, I, that is a hundred percent true statement. Yes. Yes. Paul says as a Howard is very hard to manage. I'm very hard to manage. You, <laughs> you find that to be true for like, I can't, I can't, could not imagine managing Paul. Do you find that I probably am. I I don't know that my boss. We're we're a pretty small company, and so I don't know that my boss manages me so much as, I guess, 
points me in the right direction. And, and, you know, that's what I get done. I mean, I definitely get feedback and there's constructive feedback, right? It's, sure. it's, you know, annual review time is not all you're an amazing deity and we have nothing to say. There's, there's feedback. Um, and there's things I'm always trying to, to get better at. Um, I probably am. I try not to be hard to manage, but I probably am. Yeah, I, I, I did not say nor make the assumption that anyone is, has reached their final form. <laughs> I, I know I haven't. I look forward to, to constructive and positive feedback. Even negative feedback I find better than positive reinforcement. Um, yeah. Because I, I don't know what to do with compliments, but, but I know it's a good feedback. <laughs> I, can, I, can I already know I'm good at something. Tell me what right. I'm not good at. Right. right. Uh, which, which is not a skill in that, that, that leaders should reinforce, right? Leaders should reinforce giving fee positive yeah. feedback. Um, it's all, if it's all negative all the time, then that's, you know, nobody wants to hear that except apparently strange leaders that are really looking for that. I just don't know what to do with it. It's, and, I, I don't know what to do with it either. And our team is really, really good at it. I mean, the company has a great culture for that. It's like, Hey, this you know, really impressed, really proud you got that done. I'm like, okay. Thanks. But, but was Thanks. that not the, did you not expect me to do it on time, on budget and well? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Just. When right. I get my bonus check, I guess I'll know I did a good job. And if I don't, then right. I know I didn't. And I'll ask why. I think it might be incumbent on us as leaders to ask the next question, which is, if I were to do this again next time, how would you see it running differently? Or how would you perceive the output differently? And maybe they'll have a different answer to that. Right? I, it's, it's quite possible that you're brilliant at this task, but maybe you know, a switch or a dial change would have made it even better. For most of my career, and this is probably not true of, of most people, but for most of my career, the actual outcomes I would I, I have been asked to produce, I have produced spot on nearly exactly like like within margin of error, expected error. Right. That's not my area for improvement. My area for improvement is my personality. So <laughs> it's 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 not I, I could like, how would you see that being done? They're like, no, keep doing it exactly like that. But I mean, you're a, you're a bit of a jerk sometimes. And, and that's what I work on. Right. I got a, um, one company I worked for, we did this, uh, I forget them. It was one of these personality assessment things. And you get like back this 30 page analysis and it's the colors, the yellow, the blue and the green and the red. And I'm like an angry chartreuse or, or whatever, whatever that is. Right. And they give you these, it's broken down into sections. And it's like, if you work on Don's team, here's eight bullets and and you know, never prevaricate. Um, if you manage Don, and literally one of the bullets said, issue flak jackets to his team. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm reading that and I'm like, that is so spot on. <laughs> like I have to work to not make that true, but like that's my inherent, like inside of me, that's just true. So what's funny, uh, I hired someone to work on my team that had never that I've known for years that had never been part of my team, but was one of, but worked for a vendor, mm -hmm. and was one of my main contacts at a vendor, one of my larger uh, vendors. And she's like, uh, "I don't know if I want to work for you." <laughs> and I went, I, well, "Why?" Like I treat my people really well. And she goes, mm, "I've worked with you for years." I'm like, "Oh, oh yeah, no." Just remembering you were a vendor at that time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. No, no, I, you were the enemy. Yeah, I, I don't need to be nice to you. I'm giving you money, right? Right. Like my people, I'm very nice to my people. I work very well with my people. My people like to be on my team. I'm I'm good at defending them. Um, but but offender? No, nah, it's like like it, it's likely to be a boxing match four times a year. Like, yeah. 
Right. I'm so not. Had, I'm had, doing the job wrong. How would you describe, Don? How would you describe your leadership style now versus what it might have been in the past? I mean, I'm I I prefer a pretty autonomous team. I, I want to give people some direction, like here's where we need to go. Here's the constraints that are involved. Here's what I would love to see happen, even though that might not happen. Here's, here's what's an acceptable outcome. And then I want them to go do it. And I want them to tell me if something's in the way or if, if we're doing it stupidly and we could be doing it better. Like I want them to tell me how to run the machine. I don't know how to run the machine. I literally don't know how to run the machine. As far as I know, I don't even have access to the machine. Mm -hmm. So I want them to do that. That's what they're good at. That's what they're hired for. That's where their success is going to come from. I want to be there to support that, um, to keep people off their backs. I, I want to be the one to say, no, that's not the direction the business is going. We're not doing that thing you asked for. I get that you're a salesperson. There's a commission on the line, but it's like a dollar. And I'm not like, I can't optimize for a dollar. I need, I need a million of those dollars and then we'll optimize for that. So I, I want to have those conversations and I, I want my team to just, I want them to feel very supported. I want them to, to feel very successful. I want them to feel that whatever, whatever um, performance agreement, cause I hate OKRs with a, a passion that can, is, is unrivaled by all else. Um, I want them to know that their performance agreement is achievable and, 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 and. and well, I think we lost on, but I like where he was going. Let me see. <laughs> oh, he's coming back. And he's not back. And, 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 and. <laughs> 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 my microphones were switching Tell themselves dynamically that. and I'm not sure why. Oh, here we are. Uh oh. I have to pick it. I don't know. See what happens when you have so much technology. It's too many, much. One or many of them could go wrong. I'm gonna honestly I'm gonna i I'm gonna blame it on the hub. Everybody's back. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> so I have a uh uh, so the roadcaster tends to be pretty reliable, but I have a ATEM Mini Pro that I use for video switching that I never switch. But every so often, it just dies on me, and it's the yes. most annoying thing in the world. Yeah, I have a new USB-C hub between the laptop because I have a Mac, so it only has, you know, like one port. Right. Um, you can get something for that. <laughs> well, I, I have something for that. It's not a Windows machine. Um, <laughs> no, you can get a Cal Digit. I have one with four monitors. So the Cal Digit let you have extra ports. Yeah, no, that's what I have. I think that's the thing that just decided oh, okay. it didn't want to do it right this minute. So everything was trying to switch back to the laptop's built-in stuff. And then it's like, no, no, I'm good. And so then everyone <laughs> wanted to switch back. Yeah, yeah. Sounds typical. So I'll keep an eye on that. So we heard your answer, which was helpful. Uh, I, I think my biggest evolution has been, you know, early years to my team, we need a blue box build me a blue box. Yeah. And what I've evolved to is we need a blue box, build me a blue box, but I expect in return, not a blue box, but for my team to say, we're going to give you a glass jar because you're trying yeah. to hold water. Yeah. And accepting yeah, very, that very as so. fair. Yeah. I think, I think being less prescriptive, focus yeah. on the outcome. Um, you know, my, my first job in leadership, I was definitely micromanaging because I was nervous as hell. Uh, and I, I think, 
I think there's two places that micromanagement comes from, and it's important to understand which one you're dealing with if, if you are being micromanaged. One is on a lack of trust, and that's important because you can decide if that's worth overcoming or if it is, is non-overcomable. Uh, and the other is fear. Mm. And that can be overcome. Like that, that's managing up a little bit. That's, hey, you're overdoing it and you're probably afraid that this isn't gonna come out right. So here's how I'm gonna architect my day. You're gonna get a daily update so that things never have a chance to get so far out of bounds. And then over time, we're gonna migrate that to a weekly update. And then over time, so that you can develop you know, a lack of fear. Um, fear is fear is incredibly prevalent, and I, I think people just don't acknowledge it. You, you know, the entire the entire job interview process is essentially a a fear based construct. Mm. Uh, I think and the that's job interview process was designed by law enforcement that was <laughs> interviewing suspects. Right? Like it's, it, it's a little bit horrible, horrible, outdated, antiquated process that doesn't give either side what they actually need, want, or desire. Yeah. It, it's fear. So, you know, you're a manager and you're the hiring manager in this situation and you are going to bring someone into your team who is probably going to explode like a grenade and they're going to take everyone out and the entire team, as you know, it is going to cease to exist and everything's going to go downhill and you won't be able to hit any of your deliverables and no one will survive and everything. That's, that's what it is. And so people try to construct the, you know what it is, at least in the technology industry, but it's probably most, an interview is a human unit test. And so you put these lists together of all the things that could go wrong and you ask questions about those to see if they're going to go wrong. And it's a unit test and it's mm -hmm. unfair and it's unfair for both sides. Yeah. But that's because that's because we have the wrong idea about about what we're paid to do. We're not yeah. paid to be successful. <laughs> we, we're paid to fail. Recognize yeah. failure quickly and adjust and overcome. Yeah. And the larger company you work for, the more risk averse they become. And so you start putting risk mitigations in and the interview turns into a giant risk mitigation exercise. Well, uh, to, to your point about micromanaging, right? Um, there is a big piece of fear, but the fear, the fear there comes from not knowing what your value is, especially when you reach middle management, right? They'll, they'll fire me at any point. Well, no, not really. Like middle management is still necessary and companies that cut out middle management find that middle, they, they just start putting it back almost right away. Right. Yeah. Because um, human beings can only manage a certain number of human beings. It's just not possible. And in order yeah. to have the human beings at the bottom of the chain, at the end of the chain, do the job that makes all the money for everyone else in the chain, they have to be healthy and happy. And you have to have good morale. And they have to understand what they're doing and why they're doing it. And all of the pieces of the chain are to make sure you can manage a number of people that isn't overwhelming to make sure that that message gets through reasonably undiluted and purposeful. Yeah. Right. And if people would recognize that as middle management, you have an incredibly important role and, and that your role is in fact to manage that messaging, manage those concerns, you could probably relax a whole lot and not be a, a word that'll get bleep. So. Yeah. I, um, I find, I agree with all of that. I find it's why I work best at series B through D companies. And after series D or IPO, it is time for me to start, you know, making sure someone else is prepared to take over. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm best at companies going through a growth phase. It doesn't yeah. matter what size, right? But if you're not in a transition, I'm not interested in running someone else's stuff. If you're not in a transition. Yeah. I'm not interested in doing it. It's not yeah. dynamic enough for me. The rate of change is going to be too slow. Um, and I will just be an agent of chaos. <laughs> yep. I'd love it to be different, but I would just be an agent of chaos. 
That is me. We uh, in my first quarter ish at Pythian, I brought Howard on, and we and we did sort of a back and forth on leadership. And a good chunk of our premise of the hour was middle management's the worst job you could possibly have. That was our slide. <laughs> and we described all the reasons why it's ugly, it's annoying, it's difficult, but it is necessary step for you to be a senior leader. So yes, it is. you're not going to enjoy it, but you will learn skills that you require in a bigger, more higher level organization. And most people never make it out. Yeah. Um, that's, that's actually the, the military, which which tracks these things much more carefully than, than private industry does. You know, their their middle management is kind of a mid-level non-commissioned officer. So in, in, in E5, right. uh, I, I came in the Navy world. That's roughly a first class, you know, maybe E4 second class. Upper management for them starts to kick in at, as chief. So that's the Navy. So E789, that's upper management. Mm -hmm. Most people don't make it. Like the, the pyramid thins very, very sharply mm -hmm. at that light. It's like it's not a pyramid at all. It, it's a pyramid and it's a spire on top of the pyramid. <laughs> it goes very, very thin. And it's, it's for a lot of those reasons, it, it can be really thankless. And that's where you are making the transition from whatever your job was into being a leader, which is a different job. And just a lot of people don't enjoy it. Right. So you guys talked about um, kind of where you started as leaders and where you ended as leaders and what that those uh, activities were mine was uh, watch me do the thing mm. right I, I came up through engineering so uh, as the engineering leader watch me do the thing now you go do the thing more times and then I'm going to do the thing again and then you're going to do the thing more times and then I'm going to do the thing again and you're going to do the thing more times mm -hmm. it was not a lot of um, I'm going to entrust you to do the thing there was a lot of, I'm an expert at the thing, I know how to do the thing, and I'm very, very fast at doing the thing and my res and, and very successful at doing the thing, so I'm gonna do the thing, please don't script the thing at, at a higher error rate than I script the thing and try to do it relatively as fast as I do. And that is a horrible leadership style. <laughs> it can't, yeah, it's not always, maybe the first time, it's yeah. not super productive after that maybe. Uh, I mean, I mean, it's bad for everybody, right? Like, yeah. like I, I just feel like I have a bunch of people who aren't doing anything because I've stand in their way and don't let them do anything. Right? Yeah. Um, and they feel like they have no job satisfaction because I'm not letting them do the thing that they are hired to do. It's horrible. Yeah. It's just terrible. Um, and no yeah, matter what happens, I grade them on this false notion of my performance were I doing the task, which is always false. Right? Uh, it was terrible. Um, n now it's much more kind of like all laid out. Um, we have a desire to get this accomplished. Here's what I'm looking to get. What I'm really hoping is, um, since I've hired you to do a job that you know how to do it better than I do, because you likely do, and that you will then tell me how I am wrong, so I can correct one side or the other, right? Howard, you are wrong, to Paul's point, right? You're trying to hold water, you need a glass jar, not a box, a leaky box. Ooh, you're right, I'll go correct the strategy and make sure all this lines up now. Or, Howard, you're wrong because of this. Oh, wait, no, the strategy is actually this. Let's talk about how the strategy actually works and what we're trying to do as an organization. Yeah. Right. And I was kind of lucky. You know, I use the word lucky loosely. But at, out of most circumstances, the vast majority of my leadership sort of history has been leading people I didn't have a mastery of the subject matter on. Right. So I led developers. While I could developer, I wasn't a master developer. I led architects. I wasn't a master architect. I led uh, product management. I wasn't a master of the subject matter, which forced me to build other skills. 
I couldn't be uh, the subject matter expert in the room. I could only add skills outside of that team and bring it into the team. Yeah. Which means whatever they said probably was right. And I was probably wrong, which is very difficult for most technical leaders to get over. That That's a very yeah. big hill to climb over. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm the opposite. Yeah. Most of my career, I've been the expert at the thing in the room. Um, and it isn't until recently that that has not been true where the scope has been so large. I can't be the expert of all of it. So Don, hearing the two of them, which one are you? Are you the expert that always are the expert or the other way? Or never the expert. <laughs> um, you know, so far it's probably been 75% the expert, 25%. Um, I have for the past, since 2014, been in content development of some kind or another. Um, and I know a lot about content development. I know a lot about how to do it, you know, quickly, cheaply, consistently, reliably, accurately, da -da 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 -da, all the things. Um, so it, it, it's been a lot of that and I've got a lot of experience there. And my, my, my team doesn't share all those same experiences. So kind of bringing them together and getting, you know, some operational excellence in place and really putting some KPIs and kind of measuring what we do and really knowing when to celebrate our successes and all that, that's, that's been my job. Um, I'm not the expert in the content itself. Like the, 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 the words on the page are not words that I could have written. So I, I do have to rely on other people's technical expertise to make the words, but I am the expert at the process that causes the words to arrive upon the paper. So in what, in what month will Gen AI take over your job? Is that, that's kind of the real question. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's a discussion everybody has, right? Um, I, I, lo I love the, the, the kind of underlying implication there is that all the words that have ever needed to be written and ever will need to be written have been written and we just need to put them in a different order. <laughs> and I think we just need to see if that's actually true. Probably not, but there were certainly aspects of things like, like, you know, asking someone how to write a, a, a logic construct in any programming language has been written down and taught 7,000 billion times since the 1950s. Arguably, we don't need to write those words anymore. Someone else can just go dig up the ones that have already been written and put them in a different order. So there's certainly topics. I, I think they tend to be lower level. I think, you know, you're looking at lower cognition levels, say on Bloom's taxonomy, you're looking at recall and, and remember and understand and things like that. You're not looking at analyze and evaluate and recommend necessarily because those, those activities become incredibly contextualized. Mm. And there's almost no reasonable way to feed all the context into an AI, like all your business restrictions and the fact that your CTO will never buy off on something that involves X. It's just all the businessy institutional stuff that gets involved. Um, I, I think its role as an assistant is, is where we have a lot of discovery to do. Mm. You know, it, is this in fact an easy thing? Can you put this together in a way such that you know, someone else can look at it and verify, yes, this is the right thing. It's going the right direction. It's not giving away too much or whatever else. I, 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 it, it's got a role, no no question. Um, I think we're still figuring out what that role is. I, I think everybody immediately leaps to them, oh, I'm going to lose my job. If, if you're in anything above an entry-level job, probably not. Mm -hmm. You know, Maybe. Especially <laughs> I mean, let's remove Jen from the AI, right? There's a ton of things that AI can do that that is 
that is far yeah. better than humans that requires a ton of education and is a specialized yeah. skill. Um, yeah. The, the, ultimately, the problem with Gen AI is it drives it drives to the mean. It doesn't drive to the interesting. It doesn't drive right. to the edge case. It's not designed to, and it shouldn't. And so yeah. if your job is to design to the edge case, then continue. Yeah, it can help, it can help you cover the middle. If you the mean, then that's a little yeah. different. Um, yeah, it can help you cover the middle, and then you need to take care of the rest. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that the various applications of AI. You know what occurred to me the other day, though, is when I got my first MCSE certification back in the, the mid-90s, I had to take a networking essentials exam. And this was literally subnetting and IP yeah. addresses and how does a router work mm -hmm. and what does DNS do? Nobody teaches that yeah. anymore unless you're going for like a Cisco certification. Right. Right. Like if you walked in it, it legitimately, and I understand why they don't, if you walked into a modern business today and said, hey, does anyone here know how to subnet? They should yeah. kick you out of the building. <laughs> like no one's doing that. But I think as we start to rely on on these underlying tools like AI to do to get us to the mean, there is a real risk that we lose the underlying foundation that we've built all this other knowledge on top of. Yeah, yeah. I have a talk called "The Death of Expertise." That's all about the that that particular risk. Yeah. Right? Um, as yeah. we continue to dumb out the middle, right, the stuff done by tier two and automate it. Um, when it breaks, you still need tier three engineers. And if all we're going to do yeah. is become the next COBOL programmer, like that's fine while I'm alive and cognitive. Yeah. But, but at, at some yeah. point, yeah. we're all going to age out. What are you going to do then? Yeah. Right. And I, I see these job descriptions apparently, you know, occasionally float by on, on LinkedIn. Prompt engineer. We're hiring a prompt engineer. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds like the least <laughs> satisfying way to get food. <laughs> Does it or does it not sound like? like um, idiocracy, like a huge leap towards idiocracy. Yes. But Brondo has what plants need. <laughs> but what can Brondo? It has what plants need. <laughs> I just, I'm like, oh my God, that sounds horrific. <laughs> this just sounds really, really terrible and unsatisfying. You know, at the same time, um, Har Harvard just announced that they're going to have a CS class taught by an AI, that, that the AI will be the professor. Um, and I think that's wonderful news because my daughter just went through her first CS class at a university here in Denver. I won't name the university nor the professor who should be fired. Um, <laughs> but every time any of the students asked a question, he said, I don't know why I need to take time out of my brilliant work, my brilliant contributions to help you. This stuff isn't that hard. <laughs> Which I went, oh, my God, who in the hell is teaching this class? They must be brilliant. That is literally what we were paying you to do. Is he just responding with Stack Overflow links? Like, what, what's the... I, No, nothing. He didn't help them at all. They were all confused. They so, just kind of tried to help each other to figure it out. However... So I have to ask, if, if, if Harvard's going to do this, is it coming at like a 90% discount? <laughs> That's right. We both know the answer is no. <laughs> Where's the margins? Right. Wow. But, wow. but at least, like, if, if, if she'd have taken the course two years later, Gen AI would, would have been available... And she could have just asked the AI, and it would have explained it infinitely better. Um, like that guy needs to be fired, and I hope I hope AI replaces his job. Especially because, near as I could tell, I did some research. Near as I could tell, he's never contributed to a single project, open or closed source. His name is on nothing, other than being a professor. He was probably too busy being brilliant. That's right. right. 
Right. Like it does take a lot of time. It does. Right. He's it does. tenured. I've it heard. doesn't matter. Yeah, I've heard. Carlos, 47 minutes of high quality content. How are we going to yeah. uh, monetize this? Oh, we will. <laughs> we said generative <laughs> AI. We said leadership. So we have all the keywords in there. I was trying to figure out at what minute did we start with content, like we said in the last episode, <laughs> but we started from the get go. Uh, so I, I will tell you, I will tell you the beneficial use of AI. And I've, I've had this. So um, I have a book I wrote, fiction book. Um, it's a, a young adult. It's called Clara Thorne, the witch that was found. And the main character, Clara, was very much inspired by a childhood friend of mine who I, I still keep in touch with today. And I, I called her up and I said, you know, Amy, I'm, I want to send you this book. And she wrote it. I said, this is just delightful. I really enjoyed it. She, you know, I could see so much of myself. I'm like, well, that's good. Um, fun question. Would you like to narrate the audiobook? Wow. Because I'm like, all you do is read a story. But that's not, it's harder than that to read an audiobook. Sure. So the reason I just set all my audio equipment back up is because she had it. And she was using it to record the audiobook. But the problem is that if you're not a professional audiobook narrator, you will still read through and, you know, a bit of it occasionally. And you'll just, or you'll click that a word and you won't catch it. You won't read it. So now I've got tons and tons and tons of audio that I can't actually use all of. Right. So there's a website called play.ht. And I uploaded all 20 odd hours of her narration to it. And it cloned her voice. The thing is 600 bucks a year, a year, unlimited use, 600 bucks a year. And I fed it the trans, the, the manuscript of the book, because I, I wrote the book, I have it. Right. And apart from having to go wonky the spelling of some words, like it wants to pronounce the word Mesa as Misa. So you have to respell it as M-A-I-S-A and it gets Mesa. It's fine. It's beautiful. It's it's gorgeous. Like like it, you even get the, like the, the inhale in between wow. words. So, you know, as someone who spent a lot of time producing and keeping maintained and updated training videos, I'm like, this is magical. Like nothing in my demo has to change. I just got a word wrong. An editor could go feed the new word to this thing that's been trained on my voice and just boom. Like the, the productivity improvement and, and not to take my work away from me, it, it could eventually, I would license my voice. James Earl Jones licensed his voice. Right. Um, there's there's another company that's used by Hollywood. They're much more expensive. And what you do is you you train the model. Right. So you give it tons and tons and hours and hours and hours of the target voice. And then someone else comes in and reads the script. So they do the dramatic performance of the script. Right. And then it takes that dramatic performance with the intonation, the pauses and the emphasis, and it puts it in the other person's voice. Wow. Like, I want that that's house right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of neat uses I would have for that. <laughs> all of them evil but i still want to just ai howard every other podcast see what happens i have no comment other than there are some neat uses i would have for that <laughs> well my friends that has been an awesome there's a lot of nuggets in this episode so i'll be looking for those nuggets when we finish <laughs> so make sure that you share you subscribe and we'll see you on our next episode